This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Advocacy Program Manager Liz DeBetta as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan Center for the Education of Women in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features CEW Plus's 2015 Twink Fry Visiting Social Activist and UVM alum, Sophia Cruz. Sophie is an Emmy Award-winning documentary producer and director whose work has appeared on Netflix, PBS, National Geographic, Discovery Plus, YouTube Premium, Amazon, and Disney Plus. Sophie's also the co-founder and chair of the board of directors of the nonprofit Drift Seed, which seeks to empower women and girls through film. And I'm so excited to speak with you today. Welcome to Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Would you please introduce yourself to our, our listeners and tell me how you got started in your work? Yeah, well, I'm a documentary filmmaker and director and producer. I got started as a University of Michigan student. They called it Screen Arts and Cultures back then. I think the department is now film and television or something like that. But it was a great program just for, you know, history and theory of film. And it allowed me to have this internship where I went to New York and worked for the PBS series, POV. It's a long running series. And there was this incredible documentary about William Kunstler. And it was created by his two daughters. He's a famous civil rights attorney. And I saw that documentary as an intern and I was just blown away at the intimacy that you could have telling a story about your own parents. And it inspired me to make my first documentary, which was about my dad coming out and sort of my parents' love story. So how they met, fell in love, had me, and then ultimately my dad came out out of love for my mother. Um, so that was kind of my first taste of documentary. That film is a very positive story about a non-traditional family and what it means to be a family and what love is all about. I went to a bunch of film festivals and I had folks come up to me, like I remember this one woman in Utah who came up to me after the screening and said she had just come out to her two sons who are in high school. And she said that it had been really a rough process and she wasn't really sure what was going to happen with her own family and her own journey coming out. But seeing this film really inspired her that maybe her relationship with her kids would be, you know, okay one day. I also had a friend in college who had a hard time coming out to his parents and ended up seeing my film right after he went came out to his parents. And it really encouraged him to feel like, you know, hopefully one day it would get better. And now it is better with him. That was 10 years ago. So his family situation is much better. His parents are very supportive. So that was kind of my first taste of, you know, documentary filmmaking. I loved the process. I loved going deep with my own parents and learning their story. And I also loved what it could do, you know, for audiences to kind of give people hope and think about, you know, maybe they're going through a difficult time, but hopefully things will get better. So from there, I worked for the University of Michigan after I graduated. Um, I was producing short documentaries, web videos for the University Musical Society, UMS, the concert presenter. And that was kind of a great training ground just to be making a lot of things quickly all on my own, learning how to shoot, edit produce, write, and work with artists. And I'd always been interested in the arts. I was a theater kid, choir kid, dance kid. So I loved working with performing artists at a really high level. 
And then this opportunity came up to produce a documentary about Hill Auditorium, which is sort of like the Carnegie Hall of the Midwest on U of M's campus. It had this incredible history. It was turning 100 years old and UMS wanted to celebrate this history of all the incredible artists and people who'd come through Hill and the design by Albert Kahn, the architect. They really wanted to celebrate that auditorium. And I was, you know, a recent college grad wanting to be a documentary filmmaker. And I said, hey, why don't we make a documentary? Maybe we can get it on local PBS or something like that. So for some reason, they agreed. And we ended up producing an hour-long documentary about Hill Auditorium called A Space for Music, A Seat for Everyone. And that documentary did end up getting shown on PBS throughout Michigan. And it was presented by Detroit Public Television. And Detroit Public Television broadcast to either all or most of Canada. And so that film ended up getting shown to a bunch of Canadians and lots of people in Michigan too. And we ended up winning a Michigan Emmy Award for Best Historical Documentary. So when that film came out, they were looking for producers at Detroit Public Television. And I guess my name came up and I was offered a job to start producing documentaries for PBS. I love it. I love it. This is one of my favorite parts of getting to host this podcast is listening to people share their stories, right? And and that's so much part of your work too, right? That, that when you delve into the documentary world and like really doing that, like, as you said, deep dive into people's lives, like you're really getting into the stories and the things that make us human and the ways that we can connect to one another. So thanks for all of that. Cause I knew some of it, but I didn't know all of it. And now I'm like, Oh, am I going to go watch that documentary? <laughs> um, so speaking of documentaries, your time at CEW plus when you were the twink fry visiting social activist, your project was the film little stones. And that focuses on the personal narratives of four women around the world using art to create positive change in their communities. What I would love to know is what inspired you to create the documentary? I had just started at Detroit Public Television and I was really interested in continuing to work with artists. And I'd met so many artists at UMS, at the Musical Society had come through and for the Hill Auditorium documentary. And I felt like I was just really curious with both global issues, women's rights, and how you could use art for social change. So I started researching kind of all of those subjects, not really sure what it would be. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make a documentary. I was just kind of curious and I was missing working with artists because I was mostly producing um, science and health programs for PBS. And I read a couple books that were focused on economic empowerment and working with women and just around the world and how, you know, creating a business or the opportunity even for a loan to start a small business could really change not just one woman's life, but her family's life and her communities, just the ripple effects. You know, I just started reading. I read a lot. I read about a lot of articles and books and started listening to even podcasts about it, finding different organizations that were supporting women's rights like CEW, but also Vital Voices in DC. Global Fund for Women, UN Women, and pretty quickly came across Penmela Castro, who's a Brazilian graffiti artist who had a really terrible personal experience with her 
husband with domestic violence. And she had taken that experience and figured out how to use art and graffiti to raise awareness about domestic violence and to find peace with her own journey. And also talk about this law in Brazil that was relatively new at the time that was to support survivors of domestic violence. And I became really fascinated with her story. Her art was also incredible. I loved the look of her murals and couldn't believe what she was able to do with a spray can. You just have to Google her name, Penmela Castro, and you can see all the really colorful images that she's created. And her work has evolved over you know, the, the decade plus since I first started looking at her work. So she was definitely one of the first people. And then also Shohini Chakraborty, who is an Indian dance movement therapist. Her name came up really early on also as this woman who is doing incredible work to rehabilitate sex trafficking survivors. And her work made a lot of sense to me personally, just growing up as a dancer. I started doing ballet when I was two years old. And even recently, you know, when I'm struggling with anxiety or some other mental health thing, dance has always been for me a refuge and a place to kind of go and like get it out of your system and move and find joy or frustration and like really express yourself just for yourself. And that's what Shohini calls self-dancing. So this idea that you're not dancing to perform, you're not putting yourself up on stage for anyone's view. It's just because it feels so good to move your body and to have that expression in your body. So when I heard about Shohini's work and thought about the trauma of sex trafficking where, you know, control of your body is literally taken from you, dance just intuitively made a lot of sense to me as a way to, you know, learn how to get back into your body and learn how to love your body. So those two women, some combination of their work and the issues that they were talking about with their work got me really excited about the idea of maybe making a film. And then I started doing more research and came across lots of other women and talked to them. And yeah, at that point, the film was born. I love that. The intersection of art and healing is is really central to my own journey and my own work. So this all really resonates with me. I think that those of us that are using the arts to do social change and to promote healing and awareness of local and global issues is super important. And we're in a moment in time where leveraging the stories that we have to share is vital, not only to survival, but to our ability to thrive in a world that often doesn't want us to. So thank you for your work around telling these stories. I want to talk a little bit about Drift Seed, the nonprofit that you co-founded because you use media to challenge the patriarchy and harmful cultural attitudes about women and girls. And that's big work that I support because I do the same thing in my own way. And so I'm always excited to learn about other folks who are in that dance, so to speak. So what advice would you give to artists who are looking to do similar work that's rooted in social justice? Yeah, I mean, with Drift Seed, that was really born out of Little Stones. So I co-founded Drift Seed with Mina Singh, who is the cinematographer on Little Stones. We became very good friends. We traveled the world together and really felt like there was a lot more work to do and more stories to tell beyond the ones that we were able to tell in Little Stones. So Mina Singh and her cousin Ankita Singh, who is an attorney with the World Bank, we started Drift Seed. And we've been mentoring women, younger women filmmakers who are also interested in telling stories like this. Mallory Brown is a great example. Mallory's from Michigan. She's been working on her project Walk a Mile for 
a number of years. I don't want to say how many because I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's a project where she's walking a mile with a different woman around the world to kind of get a sense of what her life is like. It's a fabulous project. She creates short films on each woman that she walks with, and many of them are similar to Little Stones, maybe not necessarily using art, but they've created their own business or are in some way empowering their community and making it better. So we like to work with filmmakers like Mallory, who are you know doing work that's aligned. I live in Los Angeles now, so I've tried to connect Mallory with mentorship opportunities, funding opportunities. So yeah, we're always on the lookout for projects like that. And I guess my advice is, you know, since moving to LA, I have worked on more commercial projects. I think when I was in Michigan, you know, there weren't a lot of options of what you could do as a documentary filmmaker. It was kind of either make your own thing or work for Detroit Public Television. And that's it. <laughs> there weren't like a bunch of documentary companies that I could apply at and start producing content for. So what I've been trying to figure out over the past couple of years is how can I still tell stories that are important to me? How can I use my storytelling voice and creativity to tell stories that I feel like really matter? And I think that that's been, frankly, a challenge sometimes. Sometimes you're on projects that are just work and you're just trying to get better at your craft and get better as a storyteller and as an editor and filmmaker. But sometimes you get the opportunity to work on a project that really, really resonates. Right now I'm co-executive producer on a PBS series. It's my first PBS project I've worked on since I left Detroit Public Television years ago. And it's about artists across the United States who are changing culture and finding their own voice through creative expression. It is very similar to Little Stones. It's not focused on women's empowerment, but it's focused on you know changing communities for the better through the arts. And so this is like a dream project for me to get to work on and take everything that I've learned since making Little Stones and how to put a story together, how to find characters, and really make you know the best possible show that we can. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to see it when it comes out. I'm also, you know, just to kind of reiterate some of what I'm hearing you say that I think is so valuable. It's the idea that as artists, as creative people, we have the opportunity to recognize that sometimes there's work that's just work, right? That pays the bills that we do because we have to do it. But then there's always an opportunity to find space to continue to create and make your own opportunities to keep doing the work that gives you joy, that keeps you alive, that allows you to tell the kind of stories that you want to tell. And then eventually, hopefully that funnels into something like this new project that you're working on, which allows you to then take all of that and keep moving it forward. And that's an excellent segue into doing a little bit of chatting about your TEDx talk that you did here at U of M called Changing Culture with Culture. So tell me a little bit about that philosophy because it sounds a lot like it's connected to your PBS project. Yeah, the TEDx talk was really about Little Stones and the women in Little Stones, but it is aligned with this PBS project. I guess it's kind of my foundational belief that there's only so much you can do around a social issue by spouting off statistics or talking like in big picture theory. And it's it's much more impactful to tell an individual story that kind of grounds you in one person's experience. And hopefully that eliminates the broader issue and also a possible solution. 
because I think the other thing that, you know, you hear like, I don't know if the statistic is still accurate, but when I was working on Little Stones, I think it was like one in three women will be a victim of some form of violence in their lifetime. And that number is like unfathomably large. And it doesn't, for me, at least it doesn't do a whole lot to feel like, oh, I'm definitely going to be able to solve this problem, this global problem of one in three women. So I think like telling a story about how one or four women are using graffiti or dance or fashion or hip hop to make a difference in their own community around a specific issue, that feels really empowering because you see kind of the ripple effect of one person and the women that she's able to touch and improve their lives and either help prevent them from experiencing violence or at least help them recover if they have. So that's, you know, kind of a foundational belief. And I think it it's a very optimistic outlook. You know, I've worked on projects with other filmmakers since moving out to California where they're much more interested in exposing the problems, exposing injustices, which is also really valid and important. But I think I'm just a naturally really optimistic person. And so for me, I like telling stories about hope and transformation, sort of people who are light in the darkness. Because to me, that feels empowering. That feels like inspiring. Yeah, I would agree. You know, as a, as a storyteller as well in, in a different medium, for me, the idea of those kinds of storytelling, that's where the healing happens when we look through the lens of a, of a story to the, connect to those really deep places that all of us share as humans. I often say that when we write or tell and share stories, we connect and heal. And so that's very much the work that I see you doing and, you know, the work that so many of us are doing in in different pockets to create this network of change, you know, and I think that's the way that social change happens. And that's how we change culture with culture, right? Those of us who are arts-based healers, shall I say, are the ones that have the unique ability to look at the world and say, well, I'm going to tell you this story, you know, because like Thomas King says, like once you tell a story and it's out in the world, it's up to you what you do with it, but you can't say you haven't heard it, right? And people take that and they leave a little bit changed in some way. Maybe it's not today, maybe it's not tomorrow, but at some point. So thank you for sharing that. I love that I could talk about this stuff all day. Yeah, I mean, it's coming up a lot in this series that I'm working on now for PBS. We filmed with Caramia Theater Company down in Dallas, Texas, and they're a Latino theater organization, and they were on the brink of financial ruin in 2007, 2008, and the theater company director, David Lozano, had this idea to take a story from the 1960s about a town in Texas called Crystal City that was 80% Latino. And the kids at the school in this town were not allowed to speak Spanish in school. They were not allowed to eat Mexican food. They were not taught their history. And they were punished when they were doing any of those things. They were corporally punished in school for speaking Spanish. And the kids at the school decided to walk out. They realized that they had power. The school board was paid per student attending school. And if they walked out, there would be no funding for the school. That had this huge ripple effect. So the students walked out, the parents who were mostly, the fathers were farm workers. 
they walked off the job. And over the course of a couple of years, they ended up taking over the school board and city council, and they were able to completely rewrite the rules of what happened in these schools. And it became a national movement. These students went to Washington, D.C. and spoke about what they had gone through. The result was that they were, of course, allowed to eat Mexican food in school. They started learning their own history and bilingual classes became a requirement for their school district. So it was a huge success story. I had never heard of it. I think many people in Texas have never heard this story. So David decided to create a play called Crystal City 1969 that tells this story. And it has been a huge success. It saved their little theater company from financial ruin. And it they're now really thriving and telling these stories about the Latino community and very much for the Latino community in Texas. Many of their productions are either in Spanish or they're bilingual. and they're you know, telling this history that is really important for people to understand about their own community. And so one of the actresses who was in Crystal City 1969, we filmed with her, her name is Liz Magallanes, and she's a DACA recipient. She has this great line where, you know, we asked her, because she was an activist who was kind of on the front line, she'd been on hunger strikes and was really a major player in the DACA movement. And she's also an actress and very involved in theater. And so we said, what's the difference between activism, just pure activism, going to rallies and hunger strikes and that sort of work versus the work that you're doing with Karamia Theater? She's like, you have this potential to change people's opinions through the arts. We're very entrenched in our ideas, you know, politically. But when you see a story and it really moves you emotionally, it has the opportunity to actually change the way you think about something. I thought that was such a great answer. And I completely agree with her that that is why the arts and storytelling really has this power because, you know, you might philosophically disagree with something, but if you're really emotionally moved by art, it's hard to deny that. 100%. Yes. And I was actually just having a conversation about the same idea yesterday with someone about the fact that the arts do have the power to change people's minds and shift culture and eventually shift policy, right? You know, and there's also like tons of research that supports that idea that when we put humans together in a space like a theater, the audience cannot turn away from the story that is being told to them and is immediately confronted with the very humanness of whatever, whatever story is being told and that they leave affected by that. You cannot leave unaffected by the experience of being, you know, bodies sharing the same physical space and the emotional exchange of that in real time. And so I think that's one of the, the most impactful things about this kind of, you know, arts and social change work is that, yeah, we can do all the marches and protests and hunger strikes and all of those very visible activist kind of moments. But when we step back and take a creative approach, it does have the effect of allowing space for people to breathe in something that might be uncomfortable in a way that's less disruptive. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's also meta, you know, like I consider what I do art. And I think certainly documentary and filmmaking has the power to enact real change. I worked on this Netflix series called The Confession Tapes a few years ago. It's about injustice in the justice system. So people who had mostly coerced 
confessions to crimes that they didn't commit and were incarcerated for many years. I would categorize that as a really important project that was really difficult to work on. These were mostly murder cases. This would not be, you know, the optimistic, hopeful stories. It's definitely about problems in our justice system. But, you know, when that series came out, we were telling stories about people who had absolutely no voice, who'd been incarcerated for many years for a crime that they did not commit. And after the show came out, people got out of prison. So sometimes the work kind of goes beyond the film itself, but it has the impact, at least on the individual level, for justice. And hopefully, we started a broader conversation about coerced confessions. I think that's the key, right, is that broader conversation, how we're using whatever art form we're engaging in to open up that broader conversation and drive some change in the process. And it sounds like everything that you're doing is focused in that direction. And so I'm so glad we've had the opportunity to chat about some of these things. We usually like to talk a little bit about self-care practices as we close out our episodes. So I would love to know if you have any strategies for self-care that you would like to share with our listeners. I think I already mentioned dance. That's for me huge. So I take dance classes in Los Angeles. I dance in my living room. Sometimes when I'm feeling like I need a pick me up or I need to get some energy out or I'm feeling kind of sad about something, I turn on some music and, you know, dance like crazy and tell my husband to stay in his office for a little bit. <laughs> so that's huge for me. It's almost like a form of meditation and breathing exercises, you know, really simple, like box breathing, where you breathe in for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold at the bottom for four, and you visualize a box as you're doing it. I find that really helpful if I just need to kind of reset in the middle of the day, like a quick reset and taking walks. I have a dog. She likes to go on walks. So at the end of almost every day, my husband and I go on a long walk with our dog and kind of talk about our work. He's also a creative person. He's an author, designer, artist. And so we, we like to talk about what we're thinking about, project ideas that we have vent about projects that aren't going the way we want them to all of it yeah thank you so much it's been a pleasure to speak with you and get to know you a little bit better and i can't wait to share this episode with our listeners wonderful thanks for having me thank you for listening to cew's podcast strength in the midst of change to learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.